Welcome to another Chicago Symphony Orchestra virtual pre-concert with your host, Laura Sauer. American composer Missy Mazzoli's These Worlds in Us was written in 2006, and it's dedicated to her father, who was a soldier in the Vietnam War. While she was home on break from college, she spoke with him about his experiences in the war. And in her words, what struck me was not so much the intensity or the shock of his experiences there, but just the fact that this man I had known my whole life could be carrying all this stuff around with him. These worlds are what Mazzoli brings to life in this piece. The work also is inspired by poet James Tate's The Lost Pilot, in which Tate, the narrator, expresses his feelings about his relationship with his father, who, like Mazzoli's father, also was a soldier. In both the piece and the poem, there is a sense of feeling unsettled by the realization that a child cannot fully live in all their parents' worlds. Tate's poem reads, I cannot get off the ground and you passing over again fast, perfect, and unwilling to tell me that you are doing well or that it was a mistake that placed you in that world and me in this or that misfortune placed these worlds in us. So how does Mazzoli bring her father's worlds of experience to life through her music in these worlds in us? One of the most intriguing elements is her suggestion that the music simultaneously conveys emotions that are usually perceived as disparate. Mazzoli says, I like the idea that music can reflect painful and blissful sentiments in a single note or gesture. Mazzoli didn't solely gain inspiration from her father or the poet to write this piece. She also cites her relationship with Dutch composer Louis Andriessen as quite influential and says that he taught her the value of writing music with specific people in mind. There are different sorts of sections in this piece that are distinct, but also blend from one to the other. Again, a nod to the different parts within each person and how experiences can be separate from one another yet related. Mazzoli is so creative in her use of different instruments, particularly in the percussion section in this piece, including the use of melodicas. These are mouth organs with small keyboards, and you'll hear these played in the percussion section in the beginning and the end of this piece. Mazzoli enjoys combining the texture of melodicas with strings, and she also likes their breathy quality. This orchestration also includes cowbells and suspended cymbal. The main theme is a haunting melody played by the violins. You'll also hear them play glissandos, which is when the player slides their finger on the fingerboard between notes rather than playing cleanly. Perhaps these glissandos represent the merging of the different worlds, the blending of disparate emotions, and Mazzoli also wanted the music to sound like it is being submerged underwater or on a turntable being stopped. Here's a bit of that opening theme at the beginning of the piece, played by the violins.
soon a new texture is introduced, snare drum. Mazzoli says the use of snare conjures up militaristic connotations, so certainly a nod to her father, and it also nods to electronica drum beats, again, the melding of two seemingly different musical planets. The snare moves right into a bluesy sounding section with more relaxed melodies, but you still hear the snare within it. Okay, I'm a broken record, but there's the combination of those worlds again. Listen to this section featuring the snare drum, and listen to how its uniform beats combine with a more relaxed feel coming from the other instruments. The main violin theme returns, this time as a solo violin in its higher register, immediately followed by the same theme, this time played by all of the first violins. This is such a powerful return of this melody because it goes from being played by one instrument to being played by an entire section, and it's supported by brass as well. There's also some beats from the bass drum that, to me, have the same sort of gravitas as the hammer blow in Mahler's Sixth Symphony. Then the snare returns as well. Near the end of the piece, you will only hear horn, oboe, strings, and the percussion section, which includes the vibraphone and mouth organs. Mazzoli also took inspiration from Balinese music from this piece, and Balinese music is often characterized by the sound of the gamelan, which is a type of orchestral ensemble native to the islands of Java and Bali. That orchestra, the gamelan, is heavily comprised of gongs and metal instruments that you hit with mallets, and its musical style often includes repetitive rhythms, so you might hear kind of a little bit of influence from that side of things. Mazzoli's use of the vibraphone in this section could be a nod to this music, which of course is another sort of world, an ocean away. I hope you enjoy this piece as much as I enjoyed telling you about it. 
Russian composer, teacher, and conductor Anatoly Lyadov wrote The Enchanted Lake in 1909. He studied piano and violin at the St. Petersburg Conservatory and took composition classes taught by Rimsky-Korsakov. He was actually expelled from the courses because he didn't show up to class enough. Don't worry, though. He ended up being readmitted to the conservatory and later actually joined the faculty there to teach music theory, counterpoint, and composition. Talk about coming full circle, right? Second chances. Leodov enjoyed writing programmatic music, which is basically instrumental music that has a program of some sort. It might depict a story from beginning to end, or describe a scene, or some specific dramatic moment. The Enchanted Lake is also a tone poem, and tone poems are typically one movement. This was Leodov's favorite piece of his own. He wrote to a friend and described it. How clear the multitude of stars hovering over the mysteries of the deep. One has to feel the change of the colors, the chiaroscuro, which means light and dark, the incessantly changeable stillness. Leodov is quite adept at creating orchestral color and atmosphere. One way he does this is by using a variety of instruments that contrast in tone, such as timpani and celesta. He also was thoughtful when it came to omitting instruments. The orchestration for this piece leaves out trumpets, trombones, and most percussion, so the texture is a little bit more transparent. Lyudov's Enchanted Lake suggests the movement of water in both the piece's overall structure and at a more micro level. There are roughly three main sections, and the beginning and ending sections have the same feel, while the middle section is more tension-filled in terms of its volume and the sense of forward movement. These sections could be interpreted as more still water, choppier water, and a return to stillness. The Enchanted Lake is based on a Russian fairy tale, and Russian fairy tales often contain just that, fairies, and also water spirits or nymphs. So, when you think of a fairy, which instruments come to mind? Definitely not tuba, right? <laughs> How about harp and flute? If that's what you've guessed, you're on the same wavelength as Leodov. We're introduced to this enchanted lake with an ominous timpani roll, single plucks from the harp in its lower register, and all the strings wearing their mutes to create a softer tone. Then chords on the harp are anchored by cellos and basses, creating that sonic contrast I was referencing earlier, as we're introduced to the micro-level feel of water by violins when they play trills and undulating textures. Some of the violins play more slowly than others, gently moving back and forth in open intervals, like la da 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 Perhaps these gently moving intervals reflect the gentle movements of the lake. The trills could be fairies flying. You can decide for yourself.
you'll soon hear the flute chirping and a thicker texture as more instruments start to play together. The oboe presents a new theme, a simple descending melody that's pretty magical in its simplicity. The theme descends in stepwise motion, which is actually a melodic device that Rachmaninoff was fond of as well. Many Russian church melodies were written in this manner. Here's the chirping flute and oboe theme. More timpani rolls usher in this more tension-filled middle section, and there's really an ebb and flow here between more volume and less volume, but the lake calms down again, and we can clearly hear celesta in a little horn call. If you're unfamiliar with the celesta, it's a keyboard instrument, and it sounds quite bell-like. Instead of having strings, there's a set of metal chimes. These metal bars are suspended over wooden resonator boxes, and when the player presses a key, a hammer hits the chime bar. In this excerpt, you'll hear the celesta right away. The main oboe theme returns in the oboe once again, so here's that melody when it returns. The piece closes as it began, with single notes from the harp and celesta, trills from the violins, and those undulating waves of the enchanted lake. In 1893, Tchaikovsky wrote to his brother, Anatoly, 
it seems that the best of all my works is coming forth from me. While on my travels, I had an idea for another symphony, a program work this time, but its program will remain a conundrum to everyone. Let them guess at it. The program is imbued with subjectivity. During my journey, while composing it in my thoughts, I often wept a great deal. The work was as heated as it was rapid. Rapid indeed. Tchaikovsky wrote the first movement in less than four days, followed by taking care of the third in quick order as well. He also outlined each movement in his head. In 1893, April, he wrote at the bottom of his score, O Lord, I thank thee. Today I have completed the sketches in their entirety. Flash forward a few months later, just nine days after the symphony's premiere, Tchaikovsky was dead. We know that he had a sort of program behind this work, but as he wished, we can only guess at it. For its premiere, he actually called the symphony just that, Program Symphony. Rimsky-Korsakov attended the premiere and asked Tchaikovsky what the program was, which quickly prompted the removal of that nickname from the score. It was actually Tchaikovsky's brother, Modeste, who suggested that the work be subtitled Pathétique. It meant that the work was imbued with pathos, not that the work was inept or pathetic by our modern understanding of that word. At first, Tchaikovsky liked this nickname, but then quickly requested that his publisher remove it from the score as well, a request the publisher ignored, of course. Tchaikovsky is regarded more for his use of melody than his innovation regarding symphonic form. He himself wrote, my compositions will never be good examples of form. All my life, I have been much troubled by my inability to grasp and manipulate form in music. But for this work, he did play a bit with form and decided to do something different than he had done in all his previous symphonies. He ended it quietly. Tchaikovsky declared that he didn't want his finale to be, quote, a loud allegro. He decided it would be the opposite, a most unhurried adagio. There are too many incredible melodic themes in this symphony to be able to cover them all. And indeed, Tchaikovsky's best innovation was not actually an ability to innovate with musical structure. It was his ability to reinvent the same melody over and over again without boring the listener. In the Sixth Symphony, he also provides a study in musical contrasts that some believe point to the inner workings of his heart and mind. We hear the dramatic contrast of this symphony explored right away and throughout the first movement. There is push and pull between major and minor, quicker and slower tempos. These changes can be sudden and extreme. The beginning of this movement reflects the feel of the symphony's end, morose, very quiet. This movement is also a bookend with the final one because both movements are in the same keys, vacillating between B minor and D major. A dark bassoon solo begins the symphony, supported by violas and basses, then oboe, clarinet, horn, and more bassoon.
Author Daniel Zhidemirsky wrote that in Tchaikovsky's music, happiness juxtaposed with tragedy is not Tchaikovsky's metaphysical disembodied theory, but his life as a fully perceived reality. I think this thought really describes the contrast in the pathétique. For example, listen to this seamless move from minor to a sunnier major. There are several themes in this movement, but one is quite dominant and is developed over and over again throughout. It's introduced in octaves by violins and cellos, and then a little bit later returns in the strings, and then turns into a clarinet solo. Here's the introduction of this theme. Writers have called the development section of this first movement, basically a new contrasting section, the most violent music Tchaikovsky ever wrote. And this section begins with vigorous timpani strikes, frantic strings, and heavy brass. I will warn you, this is going to be loud. <laughs> of the first movement is extremely affecting. But why? This cry from the strings and brass is incredibly impactful, partly because of what comes before it, and also because of the musical colors Tchaikovsky creates within it. Before this section, we've heard portions treated with more delicate dynamics and lighter textures, some sections in major. And then, comes this guttural cry with the violins playing in a lower register and the brass at full force.
Tchaikovsky wrote that the inner movements of this symphony constitute a diversion and a relaxation from tragic torment compared to the first movement and finale. And indeed, the second movement is a sort of palate cleanser. Tchaikovsky loved waltzes and dance rhythms, and though self-critical of his lack of innovation with symphonic form, he wrote the dance-like main theme of this movement in 5-4 time, which is a bit unusual. It lends a tipsy, charming quality. One review of the symphony criticized this movement as having a disagreeable rhythm, but I think you'll find it delightful. The cellos introduced the theme at the beginning, built in two bar phrases. As you listen to this excerpt, try counting one, two, three, four, five, along with the music. Another melody to showcase comes in shortly after that opening dance, still in 5-4 time and more lilting. However, it's weighed down a bit by a constant timpani drone. second movement, we find Tchaikovsky's contrast in the movement's very different disposition when compared to the first, and in the unusual time signature. The third movement is another study in contrast, this time a switch between a scherzo section, which is characterized by more vigorous and light music, and a more march-like theme. The movement begins with the tempo marking Allegro Molto Vivace, lively and very fast, and the dynamic marking of piano. Another signature element we find in Tchaikovsky's music is pervasive use of descending figures and scales. Listen to those appear from the very beginning and move across many instruments. We also hear little hints of the main theme introduced almost immediately by bassoon, trombones, and tuba, which opens up into an introduction of the main theme, a stately march. Here's the beginning of the movement, which teases at the march theme, and then a little bit later into the movement when the full march theme is revealed.
clarinet takes its turn and passes the theme back and forth with strings. There is a brief sort of secondary melody heard a few times throughout, but it's used as a device to welcome back the main theme. There's a fantastic build to the whole orchestra playing in support of this march, ushered in by a jolly timpani roll. The brass play their own small version of the march, which leads into the whole orchestra coming together to draw this triumphant sounding movement to a close. of the feel of the first movement return, but overall the finale is softer in mood and volume. This final movement includes three main themes, one of which is heard at the very beginning. Tchaikovsky loved writing thematic material and figures in descending patterns, and the second theme also features a resigned descending figure. Are certainly sections in this finale that feature more passionate declarations, hearkening back to the feel of the opening movement. And here is one. The third theme, Shorter, is played by brass and welcomed in by a soft gong strike. Again, a descending figure which moves downward both in its melodic line and each subsequent phrase's progression downward.
the pathétique which has taken us through an off-kilter waltz, brutal crashes, and cries of despair ends in near silence, with the score marked to fade to a quadruple piano. The second theme, that descending figure, dissolves with fateful plucks from the basses. Tchaikovsky wrote, Without exaggeration, I put my whole soul into this symphony. I don't think anyone could dispute that. This has been another Chicago Symphony Orchestra virtual pre-concert with your host, Laura Sauer.